Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Amy Edmondson, the Director of Graduate Studies at the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism at Ohio University. She recently had an op-ed piece in USA Today about the status of libel laws in this country as President Trump ratchets up the heat on the news media. We talk about some of America's unique history of libel litigation and what might become of libel laws in the future. Amy, in your um, piece that you did for uh, USA Today, uh, you stressed some concerns about really tendencies, I guess it is, about libel laws and erasing certain aspects of what we have come to know as libel protections. Talk about that. Well, in an era when uh, at the highest levels of government, you've got a, a diatribe regularly via Twitter from the President of the United States calling us enemy of the people, et cetera. I mean, you, you know the tropes. Um, we live in a time when we've got such distrust of the media um, that we must do everything we can to protect these um, hard-fought wins that date back, of course, libel law to 1964 with our landmark New York Times versus Sullivan. So the fact that you've got a U.S. Supreme Court justice suggesting we revisit that is uh, a little bit more than disturbing. Now, you've got a new book coming out in August, right? And you spend the the bulk of that book talking about that case and what has happened since that case. Right. It's called In Sullivan's Shadow, The Use and Abuse of Libel Law During the Long Civil Rights Struggle. And my book starts in the 1820s with William Lloyd Garrison, the fiery abolitionist, and goes all the way through to 1989 with the Mississippi Burning film and a lawsuit against Orion Pictures. So Sullivan from 1964, as we know, um, is just one case, and it happened to be the one that got to the U.S. Supreme Court first. So let's – we don't have to get into the facts of that right now, but what I'd like to do is talk about New York Times for Sullivan because what it did, it added 
a heightened degree of proof or fault that the media would have to breach in order to libel a public official. Why was that so important? Well, if you think about the the law itself, it's within the context of history. And the thing that is so interesting about Sullivan is it's as much a civil rights case as it is a libel case, in my opinion. You've got the chief police officer in Montgomery, Alabama, having been criticized in an advertisement in the New York Times as um, a violator of the Constitution for police brutality and some of his, his tactics. And so we learn in that case then that takes four years to wind through the system um, that public officials, because of the very nature of their jobs, um, have to prove actual malice. Of course, knowledge of falsity or reckless disregard for the truth, meaning in, in, in English um, that they reported something knowing it was wrong or they should have known it. Or going beyond the pale and doing nothing, essentially, to, to check on its veracity. Absolutely. And so, but that was just for higher figures, public officials. There's a different standard for just the average person. That's just negligence. Talk about the difference between those two. Sure. So with negligence, that would be a a private person with an issue that's not of um, huge public concern because the private citizen doesn't, in the court's words, thrust themselves into the limelight um, seeking to affect change on an issue. (laughs) I always Um, like that phrase. I always get the (laughs) idea of somebody jumping into a spotlight. Right, right. And so with that, negligence is a lesser, easier to prove standard of fault. Um, And so what you've got is failure to do something you should have done. Say outside the context of the media, you roll through a stop sign and you hit someone, that would be negligence outside the free speech context. Right. Failure to exercise reasonable care. And the court's not looking for superhuman effort. They're looking for um, just basic, you did a good job in your reporting. Um, Actual malice, much more difficult to prove. So we have two categories, one for the average citizen, and it makes it essentially, and I'm cutting through a lot, but it makes it easier for them to prove libel if there is, in fact, a falsity against them than a public official. It's now more difficult for them to prove libel against a publication. As it should be. Now, you say as it should be. So (laughs) why do you say that? Well, it's interesting because with the public official designation, and we haven't even gotten to the public figure uh, designation, I don't want to get too far ahead, but it's the idea that you run for public office or you're a highly, um, a well-known person who's been appointed. And it's the notion that um, from a practical standpoint, if the press gets it wrong um, by accident, uh, if the press gets it wrong, then the mayor can call a press conference and say, in actuality, this is what happened, or the president could tweet. Um, And so if you or I call a press conference as private citizens, nobody's going to come to our press conference. And so it's much harder to correct the record for a private person than it is a public official. When we look back at New York Times for Sullivan in 1964, and you said it's as much of a civil rights case as it is a libel case. Actually, 
if my memory serves me correctly, Sullivan was not actually named in the ads that were run by the New York Times. It was some inference to uh, civil rights or excuse me, to public leaders or police uh, officials or something of that nature. The Supreme Court actually at that point said that there wasn't proper identification of Sullivan and they could acquit right there. They could have said, okay, you have to have publication, obvious. You have to have identification of the person who's supposedly liable. Uh, You didn't have that. We're done. But they didn't. They went on to make this public official distinction. Why do you think – I mean you're a historian. You've studied this. Why do you think they did that at that particular time? Right. Why this case right now? Right. And so here we are in 1960 when this ad runs in the New York Times and advertising uh, advertising this group and say a a civil rights group that says heed their rising voices. Um, The notion that we are trying to raise money um, for the legal fight because, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. is facing a number of actions, including felony tax evasion in Alabama, first of its kind um, at that point. And so his legal bills are mounting. And so this was an ad that ran full page where you could clip out a coupon and send your money to the Committee to Protect Martin Luther King Jr. um, and and hopefully um, heed their rising voices with more than just your checkbook. But these are the images that are coming across our television screens for the first time of Bull Connor, the legendary lawman in Birmingham with his police dogs and his fire hoses. And so within the context of history, um, L.B. Sullivan, Lester Bruce Sullivan in Montgomery, Alabama, the the um, cradle of the Confederacy, um, if you will, this is a case that is as much about race because of L.B. Sullivan's role in stopping the demonstrations that were spreading across the South, in particular um, through Alabama and Montgomery. And so he was reported to have been in cahoots with the KKK when the Freedom Riders, along with Bull Connor, are coming through um, in the idea that let the Klan um, waylay the Freedom Riders before the police come in and provide protection. So I think the court saw this as uh, you know, a record libel judgment, five hundred thousand um, dollars, and the notion that Sullivan, along with Patterson, the governor, and right. others, were trying to resurrect seditious libel—that is, the notion of criticizing our government—and so the the uh, and and the idea that that's un-American at its core. Um, so the idea of the the facts of that case being so grounded in the civil rights movement and Sullivan's role as a suppressor of civil rights. I think that at that point, the U.S. Supreme Court just couldn't stop it. They just, they just had to go <laughs> they ahead just and had say, to go ahead. enough. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to go back and look at libel uh, a little bit more in, in depth, and maybe we can uh, dispel some myths about libel. Libel in this country 
is not a criminal act. It is a civil case where a person who feels aggrieved brings a legal action against the alleged perpetrator for money damages to make them whole, to bring their reputation back, or in some lurid cases to punish the, the person uh, or the entity that, that libeled them with punitive damages. That's not criminal. Nobody goes to jail for libel in, in this country. That's a common misconception, is it not? I think it must be because sometimes my students um, fret about going to jail, and it's like no, no problem. If you behave ethically, um, and you if will you're be a behave- reporter, you don't have a you don't own anything anyway because you're so poor. So you're <laughs> right. probably good. Right, it's we know the that. person you work for is the. Absolutely. Deep pocket that people are going after. Yes. And, of course, the law of libel is ancient. It's the notion that your reputation um, is something of value. And so rather than dueling and pacing off so many steps and turning and shooting each other, it's the idea that the government provides this neutral ground for two parties um, to – to sort of duke it out, but it definitely tort law. That's a civil wrong. This is civil law with the court being the neutral ground. But that's not true all over the world. In fact, in in some of the European countries, uh, libel is a crime. Why are we different? That's our First Amendment, uh, no doubt. And so given that we have um, this thing called the Internet now, we do worry that we're going to be hauled into foreign courts um, and and have to face um, uh, the, a court of law where there might be criminal libel because where is something published, where it's uploaded or where it's downloaded? And, of course, we have a federal law that um, Congress put into place in 2010 that has the United States not recognizing foreign libel judgments um, for this reason. Because European countries, and we'll just focus on those for a moment, don't deal with China and other even more restrictive places, Uh, they're attempting to control the internet and its content and its veracity a little more than than we are in just basic comment or basic uh, constructs. But none of those countries have First Amendment. Exactly. So we worry about being hauled into these foreign courts. And London um, was was jokingly called a city called Sue. And we have a number of instances where American writers and media companies have been um, hauled to the UK. Now, that though there's no First Amendment there, the House of Lords, I understand, has moved to um, make things a little bit more fair. But most certainly the actual malice standard um, is is not going to be found elsewhere as easily. But our court system, Justice Brennan's gorgeous opinion in New York Times versus Sullivan is, you know, the fear that of that chilling effect that we know that we will be afraid to report about issues of public concern. But Sullivan clears the way for robust coverage of the Vietnam War, of the Watergate era. And so it's that um, 
the notion, according to Brennan, that the central meaning of the First Amendment is to, um, not only is it our right, it is our duty to criticize public officials and and discuss issues of public concern without fear. So after New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964, you, uh, in your most recent article, outline a series of civil rights issues, uh, the Vietnam War, Watergate, as, as you mentioned. Do you think the reporting would not have been so robust if it hadn't been for New York Times versus Sullivan? Is that, is that your main thrust? I think so, um, especially the idea that if you think about what actual malice really is, you reported something with knowledge of falsity, that is knowing it was wrong, or you should have known it. That's a really high standard. So if you're doing your best and reporting the facts as you know them, um, you're going to be okay. And so that chilling effect that Justice Brennan and the court worried about um, is something I think is very real. And imagine if we had not had um, the reporting of the civil rights era and reporting of the Vietnam War and Watergate. Um, This changed our course of history. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You look at the fairly limited opinion in New York Times versus Sullivan, even though Justice Brennan wrote, as you said, a masterful uh, opinion. It talked about public officials, but it didn't define what a public official was. So there were questions of, does this just mean elected officials? Uh, If you have a appointed city manager is, for example, is that person a public official? Is a cabinet person uh, a public official on on the the federal level? So after New York Times versus Sullivan, didn't the course of libel even, they even took it further, the Supreme Court took it further to protect journalists? They did. Another civil rights case. <clears throat> this came out of the riots when James Meredith, an Army Air Force veteran, 
um, desegregated Ole Miss by court order in yeah. the fall of 1962. And um, there were widespread reports by the AP at the time that a <coughs> former general, General Edwin Walker, who was uh, had run unsuccessfully for the governor of Texas and uh, was just widely known as, as a conservative pundit at the time. Um, he commanded the troops at Little Rock when Central High School was desegregated in the 1950s, well after Brown versus Board of Education. Right. And at the time, so, so he, in effect, um, uh, escorted, he and his troops escorted the Little Rock Nine to safety. And that, and that uh, in that instance, Walker said he was on the wrong side. And so in 1962, here he is, retired from the military, and he gets on the radio in Shreveport, Louisiana, as he's coming in from Texas. He's down in New Orleans doing interviews on radio stations, and he's telling people, come to Ole Miss, come to Oxford. I was on the wrong side at Little Rock, but let's let's um, fight the desegregation of Ole Miss. And so the AP reported on deadline that he helped lead the charge against federal marshals as um, as uh, James Meredith desegregated Ole Miss. And as a result of that coverage, he filed a number of libel suits around the country, uh, various newspapers who had run the AP story um, based out of the Bureau in Atlanta. And so that case is going to then extend the actual malice requirement to public figures, people who are not necessarily necessarily elected, but who are well-known, like Walker. And the court also um, took some time to uh, define a public official as not being someone who is necessarily elected. It's somebody who has authority to make decisions on behalf of a governmental body. So you have an expanding of the public official definition and then this new definition of a public figure, right? Right. And I like to tell my students, um, yes, of course, anyone who is elected from the local level, you know, the dog catcher on up to the president of the United States, anyone right. who would be elected. Right. And then anyone who is appointed, of course. And I tell my students, where do they get they, their salary? Is it paid for by the taxpayers? Then you would likely consider that person or more likely to consider that person um, a public official, though it depends um, on a number of factors, but with the with the public figure designation, um, the f that can take a long time to iron iron out. Um, Richard Jewell, the supposed right. uh, security guard from the Atlanta um, Olympic bombing, died before they could figure out if he was a public figure or a private citizen for the purposes of a libel suit. And he, just to give a little background on on his case. Uh, he discovered the bomb and then uh, went on every possible talk show uh, known to humankind, uh, sort of thrusting himself out there to uh, say, you know, sell what happened, uh, so to speak. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, he tried to make himself uh, – 
a public figure but then wanted to renege from being a, a, a public figure. So isn't that part of this whole thrusting yourself into the into the fray, so to speak? Exactly. He didn't want to be a public figure when it was inconvenient for the purposes of a libel suit, I would think. So one of the first things in a libel suit, any libel suit then, is to determine sort of the status of the plaintiff, right? Whether they're an a public official, we talked about that, a public figure, uh, that can be celebrities, uh, anybody who's well-known. The Kardashians are probably public figures, right? right? But it, it, you don't have to do a lot. It's not thrusting yourself into a controversy. It's just being living off publicity and, and, and fame. Uh, so there, there are all of these different types, but if you don't know what you have to prove, you're really confused in a lawsuit. So one of the first things that's decided is, who are you, right? Sure. And and one of the things that um, L.B. Sullivan, he was a police officer, even though he's the head police officer of Montgomery, Alabama, we also know from subsequent cases that um, a patrolman, a, any police officer, um, because of the enormous power they have over the citizenry, would be likely to be considered um, a public official and most certainly have to prove actual malice. Um, if, uh, in the context of a libel suit as well, even though, I mean, even a patrolman. And in my book, I focus on um, lawsuits filed by police officers, not just in the South, not just like L.B. Sullivan, but police officers in South Carolina and Oklahoma. There are three cases um, relating to police brutality based out of New York City in the 19 in 1964 and 65 where police officers accidentally shot African American men who were unarmed and then there was a resulting libel suit and so there's some out of uh, another big case out of Chicago and so fast forward to Ferguson 2014 and later, yeah. and we have to be careful not to take for granted these rights that we have to criticize police officers in their line of duty where we believe it's warranted. And so the cases that I write about in my book from 1964 and 1965 in the New York City area, um, civil rights protesters are marching and carrying placards that have the um, mugshot of the police officer, and it says, wanted for murder. And they are appealing to City Hall, to public officials, to at least investigate more deeply the circumstances around these police shootings. And fast forward to 2014, and you've also got civil rights protesters, Black Lives Matter movement, marching with um, the mugshot of Darren Wilson, the police officer, that says, wanted for murder. It's stunning how similar those protests are. And here we have, we don't have... Um, libel suits, however, as a result um, of those 2014 and up to present time protests. So with Justice Thomas um, suggesting that we revisit libel law, as I talk about in my column um, that ran in USA Today, this is something that it's, it's ironic 
because you've got the the lone African-American justice suggesting this um, in the context of today when we most certainly should not take for granted our right to criticize public officials and police officers. So I, I want to talk about that a little bit because in, uh, in your column, uh, your op-ed piece, I, I think you you really brought up something that most people don't think about. We have President Trump, and you actually quote him uh, from a, a rally in Fort Worth, Texas, saying, we're going to have people sue you like you've never got sued before, talking about expanding, expanding and opening up the libel laws. Now, some question whether he can do that, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But you combine that with a sitting justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Clarence Thomas, who basically says, you know, this is an area of law we have to go back and re- revisit. Maybe we've gone too far a- as a court, which one questions whether he should be saying that at all, but he has. Is it the combination of these two things that you think is so dangerous? The real danger, I think, is that um, more than anything, I think President Trump's legal advisors probably spelled out after he said that in January 2016 in Fort Worth at a rally leading up to the presidential election, I think his advisors may have told him how incredibly difficult it would be to change our libel laws. Since um, we have no statutes and it would have to change by case law anyway. Right, right. So you got to find the right case, etc. Um, and so that's when he began the enemy of the people discussion, the media are dishonest scum discussion. And to me, I'm seeing more danger in that kind of rhetoric where um, the base, the those who, who maybe don't view other media except perhaps far-right or more conservative media, have really bought into this discussion that journalists are dishonest or the enemy of the people. And he has been astonishingly effective in getting that message across to his base. Uh, even so much that we had a what a BBC cameraman uh, attacked at the most recent rally in Texas. Yes, and and happily we're seeing um, record contributions to the committee to protect journalists CPJ. Um, and usually we think of having to protect journalists overseas. That's a group, an international organization based in the United States, of course, where we typically are feeling as if we need to help journalists maybe who've been arrested for. Criminal criminal libel overseas. But here we are right here at home facing um, some stunning threats that I think none of us could have imagined. And again, we have no criminal libel. And so if he's frustrated, President Trump being the he, if he's frustrated by not being able to, quote, change libel laws, then his alternative is to sort of ratchet up the base and, and, and get this furor going to to a higher degree. Absolutely. And to me, that is a bigger threat um, than what Justice Thomas says, though we, I think um, legal scholars and, and journalists really do need to push back and, and, and take part in the narrative when Justice Thomas suggests such a thing. Over history, though, the, the Supreme Court has been um, 
fairly protective of First Amendment rights his, historically and even extended it further than some of us may have wanted to see, uh, saying corporations have First Amendment rights and commercial entities have First Amendment rights. But the First Amendment has really not been something that has been attacked all that much by the court. Um, no, it really hasn't. And it's interesting because we think of um, those 45 words that are in the First Amendment, right. and Congress shall make no law. And it's kind of fun because if you think about it, Congress has made a lot of laws, a um, lot of laws. in terms of, of what we can and cannot say, in particular where we say it. And so, so much so that we have a 15-week class, as you know, called Media Law or Communications right. Law, that talks about all of the different kinds of ways um, that, in fact, Congress has made um, quite a few laws in limiting where we can speak. But compared to other countries, you're right. The First Amendment um, has um, enjoyed um, a, a great deal of respect. Dr. Edmondson, one last thing I want to talk about, and that is how things in law don't have nice, neat, little segregated compartments, and sometimes they blend over to each other. We've been talking about libel, which is one form of giving a person feeling aggrieved by the media an opportunity to get uh, compensation. But the other is the area of privacy. And privacy law seems to be an area that is morphing and changing quicker than almost any other kind of civil law because of everything with the internet and and how we're spied upon, if you want to use that term, and how our data is used and, and everything. Do, do you see a, an issue of these two conflating with each other, privacy and, and, and libel? And if you do, where, where do you see that going? People get libel and privacy confused all the time because with libel, it's you've reported something that's false and defamatory, and so your ultimate defense is truth. If you report something that's true, um, that's going to be the ultimate defense in a libel suit. And we report um, things about people all the time that they wish we wouldn't report on. And so here again, if it's true um, – journalists are safe. That's in libel. That's in libel. That's in that category. Yeah. And privacy, the problem is what you reported was true. Um, and so... But it may have been embarrassing. You may have uh, obtained the information I improperly and intruded upon a uh, person privacy. There are several different ways. But it's basically true information that should not have been put out. Right. And in an era where we share our breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, on Instagram, and we do hear increasing— I've never taken a food picture. <laughs> I just wanted you to know. <laughs> not once. Oh, my. I've taken others, but not food yeah, pictures. Right. And so if you think about how much we share about ourselves in, in, the, uh, on, in the online realm, but the privacy is more of a concern than ever. And much of that, I think, uh, those concerns are maybe relating to the Edward Snowden case or the notion of government surveillance um, of its citizens. So it's the idea, though, and we need to do a whole other episode on privacy. Right. Uh, certainly but, but, but certainly major hacks, though, of, of corporations or places that have your financial data or, or credit card information. And uh, <laughs> we, yeah, we do have to have another show on uh, Facebook. And every time I click on something to buy it, I have 45 
ads come up in my Facebook account the next day. That's right. And you know, when you click like, that's protected speech. We should certainly have a, we, another conversation. We certainly should. But before <laughs> I, I let you leave, what's the next step in libel? Where, where do you see it going with all of the president's rhetoric? He certainly isn't going to uh, pull that back. Uh, what's next? Well, I think we just need to keep doing the job we're doing. Um, when I say we, I'm talking about the the media, of course. Now, media get lumped all together in in one big um, area, but we're talking about um, you know the the kind of journalists we train here at the EW Scripps School of Journalism, um, who are going to go on and work for um, strong media companies across the U.S. and across the world. And so, if we keep doing the work we're doing, if we're transparent and how we um, find our information and link to the records um, that we uh, are reporting on. I think that if we keep going in that way, that, that maybe um, the, the public will continue to trust us, even, even the base to the far right. But in the words of Marty Barron, the executive editor of the Washington Post, they just ring in my head. Um, you know, when we think about this enemy of the people notion, Marty Barron says, we're not at war. We're at work. <laughs> That's a great place to leave it. Dr. Edmondson, good luck on your book. Congratulations on your op-ed piece, and thanks for talking with us. Thanks so much. Today we've been talking with Dr. Amy Edmondson, a graduate director at the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism at Ohio University. We talked about the status of libel law in America given threats against media by President Trump. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. You can also find Spectrum at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. 